0: Welcome to our last episode of 2018. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my writing endeavors. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 31 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her teammates in the Special Investigations Division have just arrested their first suspect in a string of murder kidnappings that has been terrorizing the city. Nevin Ardledo was apprehended in the basement of his house in Solshore. He was found there amidst the remains of a ritual occultation spell, which is designed to erase the magical signature of anything that happened there before the spell was cast. Also in the basement were five dead bodies dressed in black robes, their throats ritually cut by the knives in their own hands. Apparently, Nevin's co-conspirators have sacrificed their own lives to power the spell, leaving Nevin as the only witness to what happened there. While the SID SWAT team took Nevin back to Justice Tower, Kate and her partner Lizzie stayed behind, helping medical examiner Morgan Drowling to document the scene. They discovered that each of the five bodies had the same small tattoo, a skull and an old-fashioned key, Surrounded by an arch and enclosed with a chain, the tattoos were all located on unobtrusive parts of the body that were unlikely to be exposed in everyday life. The older bodies had older tattoos to match, which suggests that they had obtained them at different times, but at roughly the same age. For Lizzie, the discovery sparked a memory from her time at Chisholm University, the elite school for Metamore’s ruling class. Lizzie had heard rumors of secret societies operating on campus, ancient, shadowy organizations that connected some of the most powerful people in the empire. The tattoos may signify that all of these people were members of such a group, recruited during their time at Chisholm. But why such a group might be participating in ritual murder and black magic is still a mystery. Meanwhile, police psychologist Jared Tamlin remains a prisoner of this same mysterious cult. He knows Nevenard Leto only by his code name, Recludius, and he has no idea that his captor has just given himself over to the police. After performing an offering with Jared's blood and questioning him intensely about his family history, Recludius became convinced that Jared was some kind of religious savior someone the cult has been searching for for a very long time. He wasn't very clear about what he expected Jared to do, saying only that Jared would save the world, and that if Jared reached his full potential, he would better the lives of millions of people. Reclutius passed the news about Jared to his superiors, who agreed to send someone to test Jared further. As for Reclutius himself, he was ordered to carry out a difficult mission— a sacrifice that would ensure that the cult could continue its work. Before he left and allowed the police to capture him, though, Reclutius defied his orders and went to Jared one last time. Overcome with emotion, he urged Jared to remain strong, because the tests he might have to endure will not be pleasant. He prostrated himself at Jared's feet, telling him, I will not see you again in this life, my lord. But when you come into your kingdom, when the world is set right, I pray you will remember me. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 31 It was nearly midnight when Kate left the crime scene. Their suspect was safely in a holding cell at Justice Tower, the bodies had gone back to the morgue for closer examination, and patrol services had secured Nevin's house pending further investigation. There was nothing more for the detectives to do tonight. Shaw sent them a message, urging them to take tomorrow morning to sleep in. Since Kate and Lizzie's ride had left with Lieutenant Jaguer and the SWAT team, Morgan gave them both a ride home in her skimmer. She dropped off Lizzie first, so she could get a little more sleep before her expedition with Will. The leopard morph waved goodnight to them, before heading up the front steps of her brownstone apartment. I quite like your new partner, Morgan said, once they were back on the road. A bit young, but sharp. Kate nodded, watching the buildings go by out her passenger side window. Yeah, she's good police. I can see why Shaw snapped her up. There was a long silence, the only sound the gentle hum of the skimmer's lift turbines. At last, Morgan spoke again. Have you told David yet? Kate kept her eyes on the window. No, he's down at the rift for the next few weeks. Out of range. Ah. More silence. I had to do it, Kate said at last. This invitation from Shaw was the biggest break I've had in years. You turn down an offer like that, you might not get another one. I know, darling, Morgan said gently. And I'm not judging you, truly. I just... She hesitated. What? The word came out sharper than Kate had intended. Morgan sighed. Purely for effect, Kate knew, since she didn't have to breathe. You've been burning a lot of bridges lately. Casting off people who got in your way or held you back. And I'm just afraid that someday it's going to be me. What? No. Kate did turn toward her then. She took Morgan's hand and held it in both of hers. Morgan, listen to me. You are my friend. I love you, and I will never, ever abandon you. All right? I don't care how much of a pain in the ass you are sometimes. I will always have your back. Morgan pulled over to the side of the road. She didn't say anything for a long moment, and it wasn't until she wiped at her eyes that Kate realized she was crying. Once the skimmer was at a complete stop, she turned to look at Kate. The expression of gratitude on her face was so profound that Kate almost started crying too. Morgan covered one of Kate's hands with her free hand and squeezed Kate's other hand with the one Kate had been holding. "'That's good,' Morgan said, and her voice was thick with tears. "'Because I love you, Kate. I love you so much it hurts. And it breaks my heart to see you hurting so much.' Kate shifted uncomfortably. "'Morgan, it's all right.' It's been rough being off work for so long, but really I'm fine. Morgan shook her head forcefully. You're not fine? Darling, you're not fine. I love you, and I'm telling you you're not. You're walking on a broken leg. No, you're fighting on a broken leg. And you're so brave and so... so tenacious that you can just keep going, but darling, you're tearing yourself to pieces to do it. She reached out and cupped Kate's cheek in one trembling hand. I wish I could reach inside you and put the broken pieces back together, but I can't. She sobbed, then choked it back. (gasps) Malcolm stole something from you, like he did to me. I know what it's like, darling. I know. A pain that Kate couldn't put words to wrenched at her heart. At least half of it came from seeing Morgan in such obvious distress. The rest... The woman without a face flashed before her memory again. She shuddered. Before she knew what was happening, she and Morgan were in each other's arms, holding each other so tightly that it was hard to breathe. Morgan was sobbing openly now, and tears were running down Kate's cheeks, too, though she still didn't fully understand why. She just knew that holding on to Morgan felt like clinging to a life preserver in the midst of a cold, empty ocean. Eventually, Morgan's sobs subsided. She rested her head against Kate's. Her hair smelled like henna, her skin like jasmine. Kate had never noticed before. There's something I have to tell you, Morgan murmured. It's a secret, but I can't keep it from you. She leaned back, releasing Kate from the embrace, then took both of Kate's hands in her own. She kept her eyes on Kate's chin, as she had always done since she had been released from Braddock's control. She didn't want to risk putting Kate under the spell of her hypnotic gaze. But Kate had recently learned that she had powers of her own. Gently, she reached up and lifted Morgan's chin. Hey, look at me. Morgan flinched. Kate, my eyes, they can't do anything to me, Kate said. Go on, try it. Morgan's bottom lip trembled. Then, hesitantly, she lifted her eyes to Kate's. Kate felt the pressure of Morgan's will against her mind, an unseen but immense presence that seemed to reach into her from all sides. And then it slipped away and Kate was just looking into the eyes of her friend again. Morgan's eyes widened in astonishment. Kate smiled. Told ya, she said. I... Morgan stopped, closed her eyes, took a deep breath in and out. She opened them again, looked straight at Kate, and the simple relief on her face was like nothing Kate had seen from her before. Thank you, she whispered. Sure, Kate said. What is it you need to tell me? At this, Morgan's eyes darted away again. She caught herself doing it and laughed, self-consciously. Sorry. I wouldn't have thought that would make this harder, but... She paused, moistened her lips, then deliberately looked back into Kate's eyes. You know the White Widow, the one leading the resistance against Malcolm... I'm in her organization. I'm part of the resistance. Kate felt her jaw fall open. After a moment, she managed to say, How? When? About two months ago, shortly after you were put on leave. An old friend from the peerage, Homily Grace, rang me up and asked to go out for coffee. She's been a vampire for several years now. She's head priestess at the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. Kate frowned. And she's working against Malcolm? Yes. Her sire, Allura, was head priestess before her. Malcolm had Allura killed so he could control the church by controlling Amelie. When Amelie found out the truth, she joined the Widow's Resistance. And then Amelie recruited me. To do what? Kate asked. Her mind raced through possibilities, none of them good. To be an ace in the hole, I think. There aren't many unbound vampires as strong as us— if an opportunity arises to move against Malcolm, we'll all need to move together. Kate leaned back in her chair, thinking. So these ritual murders that look like they were done by the White... It wasn't us, Morgan said fervently. I've checked with Amelie. There's no word of anything like this being planned by any of ourselves. Kate looked Morgan in the eyes again. Could she be lying to you? Morgan's eyes narrowed. Only if she's much better at it than she used to be. But it's also possible that one of the other resistance cells is lying. That they've gone rogue, and decided killing innocents is an acceptable price for destroying Malcolm. And do you know who these other cells are? No, and that's intentional. All our communications are done through dead drops. If one cell is exposed, they can be cut off without endangering the rest of the resistance. She raised her eyebrows slightly, emphasizing the point. Kate knew what she was driving at. Which is exactly what that ritual in the basement was about. Sacrificing one group to cover up something bigger. Exactly. But the white would never need to resort to an occultation spell, because we don't know who's in the other cells anyway. Kate nodded, taking her point. So it's somebody else, then. Pinning it on the white and making it look like the white's trying to pin it on the syndicate. Morgan showed her a quick grin, though it didn't reach her eyes. I did tell you that there could be two underground conspiracies in this city. Yeah, but you didn't say you were in one of them. Kate rubbed at her temples and sighed. After a moment, Morgan spoke again, her voice lower and more subdued. You took the job with S.I.D. because you had to get back out there. Because Malcolm hurt you, and you needed to make him pay. Her eyes met Kate's, and Kate saw the mixture of grief and rage that Morgan normally hid so well. You see, I understand exactly how you feel. Jared had no idea what time it was when they came for him. His body thought it must be very late, but being trapped underground for so long played havoc on his sense of time. The door to the cell swung open with a boom, startling him awake. Without a word, the hooded figures pulled him out of bed, bound his hands behind him, and led him away. They returned to the vaulted chamber from... Was it yesterday? And a new figure was standing behind the altar. Judging by the way the robe hung on her body, this one was clearly female. She wore a silver mask in the shape of the death's head which obscured all her facial features except for her mouth and her bottom jaw. She watched impassively as Jared was dragged forward and forced to his knees in front of the altar. After a long moment, she spoke. So, this is the one Recludius believed to be our savior. She cocked her head. Somehow I imagined you'd be taller. Jared took note of the past tense in that sentence what happened to him? He did his duty, the woman said. How much did he tell you? Jared hesitated, trying to decide whether it was to his advantage to pretend to know nothing. His deliberations were abruptly ended when one of the men behind him did something agonizing to his shoulder joint. He fell forward and smacked his head against the altar. The truth doesn't take that long to think about, the woman observed. I will ask you once more. What did he tell you? The men straightened Jared up again. He took a few breaths to steady himself before answering. He said he didn't know why you had them take me. That he tested my blood with that magic jar because they do it to everyone, just in case. He said the reaction to my blood was the strongest he'd seen, and it had something to do with genetic markers— He asked me a lot of questions about my family. Yes, we have that information, the woman said, sounding unimpressed. Did he explain what it was all for? Not exactly, Jared admitted. He thought back to his first real conversation with Recludius, tried to remember the details. Just that he thought I could help millions of people if I tapped into some kind of... of hidden potential inside myself. The woman's lips twisted in a smirk. Well, that's certainly one way to look at it. She gestured, and the men lifted him to his feet. She reached down behind the altar and pulled out the jar again. I hope you won't mind, but I do insist on seeing the evidence for myself. She must have read the horror on his face, because she chuckled and shook her head. No, I'm not going to cut your wrists again. Here. She reached into her robes and pulled out an antiseptic towelette and a diabetic's finger stick. You can do it yourself if you like. If your blood is as potent as Recludius believed, a few drops will be sufficient. Jared looked down at the medical supplies with a feeling of profound helplessness. How long was he going to be at the mercy of madmen demanding he partake of their insanity? Surely someone from the police will be looking for me soon. But until then, apparently, he had to play for time. And if playing the chosen one for this group of lunatics was the way to stay alive, he'd better pull it together and start acting the part. Standing up a little straighter, he opened the antiseptic wipe, cleaned his fingers, then pricked the tip of his left thumb with the finger stick. He squeezed it until a drop of blood welled up, then leaned over the jar and let it fall. As soon as the drop of blood hit the inside of the jar, the arcane markings flared with orange light. It only lasted for a moment, but with each subsequent drop, the symbol shone brighter and whiter. Jared looked up at the woman's face, raising his eyebrows in question. Impressive enough for you? He couldn't see much of her expression with her mask in the way, but he thought he'd seen her mouth drop open for an instant before she composed herself. That's enough. She reached into her pocket again, pulled out an adhesive bandage, and slid it across the altar to Jared in silence. Jared opened the wrapper and put on the bandage, waiting to see what she would do next. You have the blood, all right, she said, grudgingly. Whether you have the metal, we'll find out. Jared held up a hand. Two questions, if I may. Who are you people? And what is it you think I'm going to do for you? The woman smiled. It wasn't a pretty sight. Well, look who found his courage. She cocked her head slightly, as if considering her words. I am called Adrastia. This is the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. Jared's eyes flickered down to the skull and arch symbol on the table. Charming. I did not choose the name, Adrastius said ironically. The Brotherhood is worshipped in secret for more than a thousand years. We believe that the true god of this world was locked away, imprisoned by the usurpers of the Lightbringer pantheon when the world was young. Over the centuries, the shackled god is called to us. "'revealing himself in our dreams, "'seeking out those with the ears to hear him.' Jared frowned. "'His wife Catherine had been an aficionado of ancient mythology, "'and over the years he'd picked up some of the stories from her. "'There were myths about gods that preceded the Pantheon, "'but they were always portrayed as relatively weak, feeble deities, "'beings that had been forced to humble themselves "'before Cameloth and the other new gods,' Or risk vanishing entirely. It was also said that Cameloth and Baal had conspired to imprison a race of powerful beings called the Titans, who were supposedly the gods' elder siblings and had been oppressing and enslaving humanity. The Titans, it was said, were alien and insane, inured to the suffering they caused the mortal races, and it was for the good of the whole world that Cameloth and Ball had locked them away. This story was not exactly like either of those stories, but it had elements of each of them. Was it a garbled combination of the two? Or perhaps an older version that had given rise to both of them? It was certainly less blatantly self-serving than the stories the Pantheon told. The gods were always good at public relations. Assuming this shackled god exists, Jared said, how do you know he's benevolent? Maybe he was locked up for a good reason. Adrastia inclined her head, conceding this. A fair question, but consider this. Who is better suited to know the purpose of a thing? The one who made it, or the one who steals it from its maker? The usurper gods freely admit this world is not their home. The god of the Ecclesia is only a whisper, a shadow. He barely speaks at all. And when he does, he never deigns to explain himself. Our God has told us a story that makes sense the story of a world ripped from the hands of its creator, which has been spiraling into chaos ever since. Is it any wonder that peace is so fleeting? Is it any surprise that people suffer needlessly, that diseases and hunger and poverty menace the world, that crime tears our cities apart? These are the symptoms of a world that has lost its way. We will not find it again until our true master has been freed to set things to rights. Well, that part at least is familiar. Jared schooled his face to careful neutrality, but inwardly, he almost felt pity for this woman. You think the world's supposed to be fair, and you've invented a story to explain why it isn't. It was the same wishful thinking that kept the Ecclesiasts focused on Eli's heaven instead of their lives on Earth. For that matter, it was the same mentality that led the Universalists to dream of Universal Enlightenment, the magical day when the universe would understand itself and be reborn. Everybody's wishing for a perfect world. "'So what does that have to do with me?' Jared asked. "'Probably nothing,' Adrastius said bluntly. "'I do not believe you are the one we seek. You are too soft.' too meek. We will not be saved by a psychologist. Jared smiled thinly. Fair enough. But indulge me. Adrastia returned the smile in kind. The shackled god requires a mortal vessel to channel his power. Not just any mortal, but one with specific genetic and arcane qualities that make them open to his influence. When the time is right, when we have prepared the way— our god will be able to reach out from his prison, and place a portion of his essence within the vessel. Then the vessel will lead us in the work necessary to reclaim his stolen power, free the shackled god completely, and restore his creation. So, now they've added the second coming of Yahshua to the mix. Quite the theological stew you've got there, Adrastia. How will you know when you've found this vessel? Jared asked. From what you've said, there's more to it than the genetics. Yes, the woman said. You have passed the first test. For the second, we must see if you can hear the voice of the shackled god. We will place you in a trance state and see if the god reveals himself to you. A trance? That doesn't sound good. What if I refuse? Then you are not the vessel, Adrastia said. You will return to your cell and stay there. Jared felt a chill that had nothing to do with the cool moisture of the tunnels. For how long? Do you intend to leave me down here to die? For as long as necessary, Adrastius said. Your presence topside was creating difficulties for our current mission. You were merely an obstacle, a roadblock. She spread her hands, palms outward. Recludius has offered you the chance to be something more but the choice is yours. Jared thought hard. When you say as long as necessary, are you talking about days? Weeks? Years, Adrastia said mockingly. Decades? Or perhaps we kill you tomorrow and let the river take you. We have not remained hidden for a thousand years without the will to make hard choices. Jared didn't doubt that part for a minute. Let's say I pass all your tests, he said. Say I am the vessel. What happens then? The woman grimaced. If that were to happen, you would be our leader. We would be sworn to obey you. So if I told you to let me go, you'd have to do it? Adrastia's lips pressed firmly together. Tell me, Jared pressed, if I prove to you that I'm this vessel— and then I tell you all to go away and leave me alone. You'll obey me? Adrastia looked like she'd bitten into something sour. We will obey the vessel's commands, she grated. Jared allowed himself a moment of perverse satisfaction. So he did have a way to win this ridiculous game. What happens if I try the tests and I don't pass? That depends on the test, Adrastia said. If you cannot feel the god's presence in your dreams, then you are of no further use to us. You will be returned to your cell. If you fail the third test, it will likely kill you. She bared her teeth at him. The fourth and final test has not been performed in centuries. I cannot say what would happen if you failed. Nothing good, I'm sure, Jared thought. His odds were looking worse all the time. Then again, she had said the second test was not inherently risky. It would cost him nothing to try it, and it might buy him extra time for the police to find him. At this point, every hour he dragged things out was another hour when he wasn't being killed and dumped in the river. All right, he said. Give me the second test. And that's the end of Chapter 31. Come back next time, when Morgan and Amelie examine the bodies of the cultists, and Michael discovers the hints of a deeper mystery. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,705 words this week over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 676 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 84 days without breaking my chain. I would have liked to do more writing this week, but I was busy with Christmas stuff, so it took me three days to finish recording and editing the podcast. Homecoming is now over 35,000 words, and I'm just coming to the end of Chapter 12. As I said at the beginning, this is our last episode of 2018. I've released 40 episodes this year, which puts us pretty much on target for what I planned when I started this season. I want to thank you all for sticking with me through this year. For all the donations on Patreon, for buying my books on Amazon and my audiobooks on Audible, for all the positive reviews you've left, and encouraging notes you've sent me. 2018 has been a year of extremes for me. I published The Lost and the Least, I got married, and I welcomed our new dog Cedar into my life. But I also had to say goodbye to Dulcie. watched many loved ones struggle through loss and heartbreak, and wrestled with a dry spell in my writing that lasted for most of the year. One thing's for certain, this year would have been a lot harder without the support and encouragement you all showed me. So thank you again, from the bottom of my heart. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season, and that 2019 is a year of better and brighter things for all of us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorcityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255 82 Followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is Facebook.com slash Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.